0: Inside the You're such a guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Go Ape! The first major multimedia craze and how it disappeared into the vaults of time. On the new and approved Third Eye Center Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. <laughs> so, good evening. And welcome to the final episode of the 10th season of Weird Things at the On, oh, You are such a guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, the maven of sleaze, virago and vituperiveness, and we've got to figure out another one for him. <laughs> As we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. As I said, I am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello, Lewis.
1: Hello, everyone out there. Welcome. Thanks for uh, joining us. I, I was interested in doing this. We, we mentioned it a few times over the years. <laughs> yes. Uh, most recently.
0: Probably uh, in the uh, sci-fi movies. The this,
1: these, yeah, we were talking about Charlton Heston, maybe. Uh, Moma Man, and certainly the Rodney McDowell. Yes. The Rodney McDowell one. But I was really interested in tackling tackling these films because uh, they're just so – well, the earliest ones are just so weird. And I really liked, I, I'm curious, if you hate them, fine. But I, I kind of like pushed you a little bit to watch the
0: new uh, three. The, yeah.
1: Yeah, the last three. And because uh, I, I loved the last one so much. But anyway, I'm not going to mention the TV series. Yes. Uh, I, I don't know how much we're going to get into that because it has pros and cons. Yes. Anyway, so. Off to you. Go ahead.
0: We took the early, more progressively minded science fiction of Charlton Heston on our recent show, and the life and career of the ubiquitous of McDowell not very long ago. One series of films notable for featuring both iconic actors in primary roles remained glossed over, however, despite spurring a personal visitation of the original five-film run after the McDowell chat unaddressed that is until now marked by a then relevant if somewhat naive by modern standards allegorical exploration of race relations and nuclear brinksmanship the series was a true cost celebrity in its heyday resulting in all sorts of spin-off items migos action figures comic magazines paperback novellas a popular book and record series from power records games jigsaw puzzles plastic models even a short-lived tv series like the later star wars the apes were inescapable throughout the early to mid 70s and then just like that utterly forgotten Despite a post-millennial attempt to revive the series in a disturbingly far lesser CG-based trilogy of films, the Apes films seemed locked in time, a 70s concern that left a huge mark, only to disappear seemingly without a trace. So what happened? How did such a force of culture defining cinema rival only by the Bond series, smaller-scale works like the Six Million Dollar Man by Eric movement franchise, and the brief popularity of blustery stuntman Evil Knievel for its sheer broad impact, simply drop off the radar seldom if ever to be referenced again? And then seemingly out of the blue comes that 2011 reboot series. So join us tonight as we pick some nits off each other and speak once again of those hoary days before Spielberg and Lucas turned cinema into a wasteland of brainless popcorn fare (laughs) and realized that 40 plus years back this was about as lowbrow and brainless as things were ever likely to get. My, how things have changed. So uh, this is week 85. Go Ape, the first major multimedia craze and how it disappeared into the vaults of time. So um, I guess we might as well just get started with the first film. There's really nothing, no preface to that. So 1968... Planet of the Apes drops, and you got to realize this is, I believe, even before 2001, right? Was uh, it 69? No,
1: 2001 was 68. As
0: oh, well. same year. So okay.
1: It was a watershed year for these it strange was movies.
0: Uh, really defining. <laughs> I mean, it shows where we were with in terms of uh, thinking about the post-apocalyptic, you know, nuclear brinksmanship stuff, but also forward thinking and uh, reaching into areas that you wouldn't see later on. Nowadays, we would kind of stop at that and leave it at the dystopia and go from there. Here, they were trying to find something better, especially something like 2001, but even here, especially in the first film. So, this one is so unlike today's cypher-filled beat-point-driven cinema, you can actually tell just how much we lost in the transition from classic cinema to modern crap right from the first few minutes of the film. Without an incredibly lengthy recap here, a quarter of scientists, now down to three, a quarter. <laughs> uh, four of them. The to three. Has been set into space at the speed of light for an as-yet-unpurposed mission. All we know is that they've therefore broken rules of time and space travel and gone 200 years into the future. The ship crashes into a lake on a desert-like planet when we discover some very different philosophies driving the three astronauts. One perhaps notably at this point in real-world history, the black man, is driven by pure scientific curiosity, sacrificing all to get at what may actually be the truth. The other, written hard by Heston, purely did it for the glory, to be remembered like some sorry high school football hero trying to immortalize their small bid to fame eternally. Heston is the most complex and realistic, a war-hating cynic so disgusted with the world and the failings of humanity at large as to choose to escape by any means necessary in the belief that there must be a better world, a better way out there somewhere. He's dark as hell, but like all cynics, is a life-hearted romantic at core. Like his Omega Man role, this is another iteration of Heston the hippie, a period document that would live on to boggle the mind as he moved into his flag-waving, gun-toting NRA Republican mode in the 80s. Things go weird when they find a waterfall and bathe, only to have their clothes stolen by mute, primitive Neanderthal types. Immediately thereafter, a group of horseback riding apes raid the nearby cornfields and in the ferret kill one of the astronauts, and as we find later, lobotomize another, while wounding Heston's throat, so for all intents and purposes, he appears to be one of the primitives, because now he's mute as well. He winds up in the care of a couple of ape scientists, the empathetic Dr. Zora and her more hard-headed mate Cornelius, uh, who is Ryan McDowell, and eventually reveals his greater intellect and ability to speak. This puts all three in hot water with head scientist-cum-theocratic dogmatist Dr. Zayas and sets the group in search of the Forbidden Zone, where they initially crash-landed, to prove Heston's story and clear Cornelius and Zorov charges of heresy for believing him. But the ending is grim, as Heston sealed off in the Forbidden Zone, the others are formally accused of hereticism, and Chuck makes that famous closing discovery. So, given all the films, television, books, comics, magazines, toys, and so forth that were direct sequels, remakes, or reinventions of this film, it tends to lose what first-time viewers got out of it a strange little mystery on what we're supposed to assume was a distant planet where evolution went down a very different path, rather than a logical conclusion to all the atomic testing and global warfare that we'd only just begun to mess with at the time. Watch it like any other viewer familiar with the series and such. It's still a decent film with a few choice scenes and quotable bits of dialogue. But try to forget all of that, and watch it with new eyes, and you'll see what a gut-busting sucker punch this had to be for an audience back in
1: 1969. Oh, it's, this is a—it's uh, a hell of a movie, because... <clears throat> I saw this, I, mean, I, was, I was a kid, I was a kid back in the, when this first came out, and um, my dad, I think my dad, my father took me to see this, and um, it was like, wow, and then it was a film that was re-released often, back, back in the uh, early 70s, you know, movie theaters did that, there was such a thing, double bills for comic yeah. plays, for, for those who are a bitch about ben spending $20 for one movie, back in the days,
0: there was no home video.
1: Yeah, and, and they, they would always double bill a movie. They would bring, uh, when this first came out, it was the main picture. Then there was another movie below it, you know, double bill. And, you know, for years, this was, it did lots of rotation. Anyway, Rod Serling, Rod Serling published, yes, the Twilight Zone's Rod Serling, uh, polished off the uh, script based on uh, the Frenchman uh, Pierre Bule's novel, Boulay, which I, I had read after I saw this movie years later, of course, because uh, they're very curious. and That's a very good book, too. Same name, Planet of the Apes. No, um, it's so dark. And it's, you know, between 1966 and 1972, with a few other films appearing over the next three or four years thereafter, but not as often, cinema really had some films that changed the world yeah, and changed cinema itself in in having the balls to make films like this this is you know 20th century fox this is a major film studio Charlton Heston was a major star in the 1950s he was starting to wane a little bit in popularity but you know still the name alone Charlton Heston you we know, I wouldn't mean your film would get made but he just didn't you know the other films he had made come to the Ten Commandments anyone? You know, this, this guy was a huge fucking megastar. But, you know, after a while, the 60s was a turning point uh, due to lots of stuff we're just not going to get into right now. But it's just a dark film. And it, it and it's amazing. If you haven't seen this in a long time, you take fresh eyes at it. They spent a lot of time making this. Not only do they get an exceptional cast, Kim Hunter. I mean, mm-hmm. Rodney.
0: Yeah, Kim sticks around for a couple of these films. Yeah, Maurice
1: Evans, you know, yeah, yeah, great theater presence, amongst other things. But they, they, they didn't just like throw a mask on you and move your lips. Now John no. Chambers, uh, is him and his crew did some amazing work. Also, I wanted to point out Jerry Goldsmith's score is so not of its time. His musical mm-hmm. score, it's it's at times atonal. Did you ever notice that? Yes. Yeah, so out of place. It was uh, like he was listening to John Cage or something, or
0: maybe he was Philip Glass. something Philip like that. Glass.
1: that. Uh, <laughs> I, I think he was looking for for something. And you know what? Heston holds this whole thing together. Oh yeah. And he, he's so great in it. And this has, his
0: trio of films: Silent Green, and Omega Man, and Planet of the Apes, really do stand out. And it shows a very different man that. You know, if you're younger and you just grew up with him blustering on stage, you know, spunting for Republicans and guns and whatever the hell else, you would be shocked. This is not the same man. This guy was full on, you know, an aging hippie. <laughs> and he was a really good actor. at
1: the Yes, yeah, well, he so. totally throws himself in the role. I mean, uh, you know, what, what uh, so, uh, so great portion of this film is with him running on foot, you know, barefoot. Reminded me of uh, Cornell Wilde's, uh,
0: what's that, The Naked? Yes, name? The Naked, uh, Was it, Naked Jungle? The naked, naked Prey, J- I think, isn't it? The Prey, thing. that was it. Yeah. And good film, wow. That's it's great. a
1: good film, and it's so
0: raw. It's a raw movie. And
1: that that sucker punch ending? Yep. It's been
0: copied, parodied. People are still quoting it, they don't even know what the deal is. I mean, it's like, okay, so now it's no longer a surprise, but it says something. It says something. It says something. It says something. And...
1: and there's been a few times in non-ape related movies that they they tried to do that kind of thing and it worked, but more often than not, this is the first film that does that, and it's yeah. and even more stranger is the next picture in the series.
0: Yes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, 1970. As a kid, I recall this from being closest to my own sensibilities with science fiction. Rather than all this dirt and desert nonsense with apes and man or what have you, he was more hard SF with nuclear holocaust mutations, an apocalyptic cult-driven civilization hidden away beneath the subways and impending global doom. Of course, it takes a full 45 minutes to get there, as we deal with a flashback that picks up where the last film left off and shows the events that happened thereafter and If you don't see Jack Kirby's entire 70s output in these films and Kubrick's 2001, you're deluding yourself. I mean, everything he did was stolen from those two films. Allowing for new astronaut James Franciscus to show up as our new protagonist, he's part of the, quote, rescue crew sent out after losing contact with Heston's group, before going on a long, boring tangent about military ape Ursus wanting to invade the Forbidden Zone for no apparent reason. But once Franciscus finds the old New York subway system, things go almost 2001 for a bit, all eerie sets slow silent pacing and only an irritating digital whine for accompaniment You talk want the weird soundtrack mm. for the rest of the film we're slowly introduced to the expansive sets of the subway world and the seemingly mute telepaths who run it worshipping a golden missile they can actually speak but reserve for hymns to the bomb and their face their masks covering the radiation scarred freak shows they actually became we get to see a silly catholic mask to atomic devastation which is actually pretty funny but uh, I do give them props for it the apes decide to invade and in the brouhaha, Heston, his girl, and Franciscus all get killed with the latter setting off the doomsday bomb they worship. as we're told Earth no longer exists in the closing credits. Ouch! <laughs> Directed by, of all people, Ted Post, also the baby and Good Guys Wear Black fan, but more known for like bad TV in the 80s. This one comes off super dark, and you'd think you would have nipped any Pewter series right in the bud with this, with that ending. Obviously, other directors and authors found a way to get things off on a different foot, but jeez, I mean... There was a, a Doctor Strange that somebody actually uh, adapted for audio on YouTube somewhere. And that was the beginning of the story was Earth exploded, and we are all dead. Was like, that was the way this thing ends. The guy who comes over in the end the credits is like, Earth died. And that's it. Uh, okay? <laughs> yeah. I, Wait for the next one in the series.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is, this is. Uh, I mean, if everybody remembers, the first Planet of the, planet of the X being shocking, this gets even darker. It begins dark. <laughs> <laughs> I I I don't you know. There's a long passages with silence as they, as they they you know discover parts of New York. And, which would make sense, being that in the vicinity, you know, there's of the Statue of Liberty and the... other things. Yes, you know, yes. ruin it for the anyone man. who would never have seen any of these movies. It's possible. Um, hopefully, this might make you want to check them out anyway um but yeah once the mutants and you know what <sighs> going through all the 1950s and the 1960s with a variety uh, no budget medium budget and very 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 seldom anything above a couple hundred thousand dollars science fiction was you know owned by TV after a while and this movie really said let's so we did that with the first film let's push it a little bit further and the whole thing with the mutants is so bizarre
0: yeah and i mean it's got a bad reputation a lot of people really hate it for some reason and i if i was going to say anything about that it's the boredom of that first 45 minutes mm. you know okay they give you a flashback fine whatever and then it just kind of drags okay we got a new guy here he's part of a research team they sort of bring chuck back he was going to get set up for this ending but it just drags and drags and drags and drags until you get finally to the been so on the subway and then that last 45 minutes to the end I don't know about you but I was you know, riveted to that stuff and still am so I don't get the bad reputation it has no. other than
1: yeah you know, I, I agree but some of these pictures in the series I would say the last one has well deserved bad yeah. reputation but we'll get to that um, but yeah the ending of Beneath the Plow of the Apes are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all right. The first film with the sucker punch ending we talked about. But the ending of this film, <laughs> I mean, you know, look, how do I put this quickly? It's um, when you see a film and like the heroes killed off, like uh, a, a recent series that's been around for the 60 years. And uh, I just saw the last picture i'm not gonna say what it is most of you know by now and like i was like are you fucking kidding me and uh yeah you should all know what it is we're gonna get around maybe we will revisit the the series again one day and uh you know what i'm talking about um oh 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 yeah you did say something about that yeah i was like are you fucking kidding me and uh (laughs) very good one of the best anyway so you know, you're watching his picture, Heston's back, and you know, him, you know, and, and Franciscus was quite, you know, after that stumbling in the first uh, quarter of an hour, um, you know, we're getting somewhere, and they make a good team, and then it just, you're like, okay, where's, you know, how are they going to tie this up, you know? And, <laughs> but they don't, they said, you know what, fuck it. And, you know, uh, and
0: wasn't it Heston that did it? Was it <laughs> was Heston that did it, it was
1: wounded. <laughs> They're all dead, <laughs> and, and and I was like, oh, fuck, you know. That coupled with the bizarre mutants who really have some yep. power, you, you know, you're thinking, oh, what kind of power do they have? Oh, and, and the a and the makeup tears. is quite good. It's it's oh yeah, you know, not it's it's on the edge of horrifying scar, you know, burn marks. You
0: you want to look? At. They come just short of like a Doctor Fives or Mister Sardonicus, but yeah, in but, that but, area, but it's so. quite
1: good quite good
0: yeah sure it is then the
1: series took a, a bit of a curve which nobody saw coming because like
0: how do you follow this exactly exactly and here we go escape from the planet of the apes or escape so I should say things managed to stay interesting in this somewhat slipshod series third entry by inverting the premise of the original film and ignoring the fatalistic ending of beneath Don Taylor, a bit player in lesser fare like Song of the Thin Man and The Naked City, who then turned director for such undistinguished fare as The Five-Man Army, Omen 2, and the second best of the island Dr. Moreau pictures, for what little that's worth. In this one, Cornelius, his wife Dr. Zero, and her pal Dr. Milo, who's quickly off in a situation with a wild orangutan, somehow managed to get one of the space shells back from the bottom of the Forbidden Zone Lake, and active, and using the nuclear death of Earth as a gimmick, managed to use that to head back through time to the then present of 1973. Yeah, it's a little far-fetched. They just kind of gloss over it. But anyway, when the military discovers that these apes can speak, these ape astronauts, they're brought before a public commission, as if, where the outspoken feminist-leaning Zero wins the hearts of America. Now, celebutaries of the highest order, things go sour when someone gets Zero loaded, and films are talking about the Great Ape War and takeover of humanity, and worse, her own record of human experimentation as discussed in prior films. Yes, she's basically a Dr. Mengele, a likable Dr. Mengele. So, enraged, the public demands Zero's pregnancy aborted her and Cornelius uh, and orders her Cornelius sterilized to ensure their future never comes to be. A sympathetic pair sneaks them out to a traveling circus by none other than Ricardo Montalban, where Zero gives birth and swaps babies with another ape. They go on the run in a cop show style siege aboard an abandoned freight ship and they are killed, leaving their son to be raised by Mr. Rourke and Tattoo. No wonder they want to subjugate humans. Uh, at this point, it's becoming clear that this is less a series of standalone sci fi films, but more an ongoing mini series, with each film representing a perhaps out of order set of chapters that make a whole. I mean, who would bankroll film like this otherwise? Is the message that blatant or worthiness to sacrifice action, plot, or any sort of hook to draw viewers in? I mean, it's kind of kitschy to see the apes doing the Chatsaw circuit, but are we supposed to root for the same war crimes that Nuremberg had only brought to justice a few decades since? Zero was a cold scientist, not as far removed from a mango as you may suspect. Sure, she's developed a heart and personality since, but it's a landmine scenario, peppered with racist allegory on one side and moral compromise on the other. Should we allow the war that gave rise to the apes? And while it seemed to be our own fault in the original, several statements in the next two films leave that idea somewhat compromised. So it's kind of a dodgy minefield of a film that, on just a surface level, really goes nowhere. It's very kind of talky and oh look, he's in the chat show circuit, isn't this cute? Oh wait, now they want to kill him off. Let's hope they get away or wish they don't. But okay, let's hope the sun gets through so that what? So this starts all over again. I mean, it just doesn't. It doesn't work on a lot of levels, but. It sure is entertaining as hell to watch. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. We forgot to mention it. Roddy McDowell was – or if we did, I skipped it. Uh, Roddy McDowell was absent from Beneath the Planet probably working on another movie right. or wanted more money or whatever. Uh,
0: but he's here, and he stays with the series and the TV series as well. Yes, so. uh,
1: Yeah, it's an odd film. This is the, the one in the series that's an odd film because it begins pretty good given its budget. okay. They, you know, as you just said, you know, they somewhere between, actually somewhere before the ending of Beneath the Blood of the Apes, which only makes sense because they destroyed the world, which we didn't see. They, these trio of astronauts found one of the ships, either Taylor's or Brett's.
0: Probably his, yeah, because the other one sunk at the bottom. Right, so probably
1: Brett's. And they managed to get it working, and they... I I think they just wanted to escape, knowing what was happening. I I don't know if they could intentionally
0: go go back in time, but I think they're just escaping. But because of the nuclear holocaust, they claimed that they made a wormhole. You know, it was all kind of sketchy. All kinds of sketchy, but yeah, but
1: it does go into some pretty deftly scripted areas. that I give them credit for pulling it off. You know, that whole it deals with racism, racism, yeah. which uh, around 1970, 71 which is a big thing in America, in the
0: world, actually. Well, all these films are based on a racist allegory. Yeah,
1: and, and, and it handled quite well. But, yeah, you do have a good point, which uh, a lot of people probably never pick up on, is early on in the first film, because she's she and Cornelius are both working for Dr. Zayas, uh, the uh, orangutan leader. They are experimenting on the humans, because that's all they've known for a long, long time. Yeah, you know? And, and so, yeah, it brings up some things that maybe they should not have delved into too much. But you, you have a very, very good point there, though, because tricky, tricky stuff. Eric Braden, who, uh, perennial TV character. So popular. So <laughs> popular. But, but, yeah, he was good for what he was doing, you know. And he was terrific in a couple of movies, uh, including... Um, Colossus, the Forbidden, Forbidden, the Forbidden Project? Yes. Another good film we've never covered, but uh, it's like, how do you talk about that movie? It's strange. <laughs> it's a very strange movie. So he was really good breaking out of his TV mold to play evil prick characters of uh, uh, some stature. Ricardo Montalban actually quits himself well in this film. The um, only you know, thing is Bradford Dillman, part Bradford Dillman, you know, he uh, said... <laughs> <laughs> a guy who occasionally would, would cross over into you know, films of note. He's in uh, something with Bronson, a couple of Dirty Harry's, you know, but Eastwood, you know, he did get around, but he was a very tight cast kind of actor. He, his range wasn't really so wide that he could do something. So it was like, Bradford Dillon, is Bradford Dillon. but anyway it's no you really had the I could not add too much more to what you already said about this film the next one gets very interesting
0: yeah so Conquest of the Planet of the Apes 1972 the last two films were Helma J. Lee Thompson, which for the, all the ongoing flows of the series really did help in extending what to date was kind of a slipshod trio of films that barely felt connected while simultaneously, like we mentioned just from the last one, felt kind of cheap and television quality enough to come off as episodes of a mini-series, especially Escape. The backstory this time is that a space plague wiped out all cats and dogs, so people started <laughs> keeping apes as pets eventually deciding, you know what, let's use them as slave labor in what became a Nazi police state. How mega of them. Again, it's a much talkier film than the first two where Ricardo Montalvo takes the now-grown Milo to the city where he gets to see how poorly treated the new surf class is treated under the Nazi jackboot. So when Roddy speaks out, Maldivon takes the heat, eventually killing himself to protect his ape charge. The rest of the film involves Roddy attempting to start a revolt under his new name of Caesar among the slave apes and their declaration of a more peacenick approach than their captors. It's both weird and sad to see how naive a lot of this hippie cinema feels in the face of the new Republican fascism and the events of the last five years, with little or no redirection or punishment handed down for all of it, hello, Rittenhouse. Even this Rittenhouse scam, complete with straw man arguments, logic and Brett Kavanaugh-level fake crying jags, and a B-movie comic book villain judge, seems to upend the well-meaning argument between the sympathetic black lieutenant governor and Caesar that closes the film's fiery final minutes. While always intended to play as a mixed message of sorts, it's hard not to say with the apes in this one. They simply been abused too much and too long for no reason. It's it's a troublesome film. I did like it, certainly more than the next one. But uh, it's kind of a... It's, it's one of the hardest ones to watch, and yet it feels vital for that.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, excellent job on this show, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough film to watch because it, while it... Did, you know, I don't understand... I, I Even when I was younger, it's so now my uh, <clears throat> teenage years, mid teenage years, I even realized then why, why is it looking a little cheaper? And it's funny, Fox keeps cutting the budget for these pictures. Yeah, yes. it's probably making more money than anything they've ever been successful at in producing uh, for the studio. And every time they make another film, Fox goes, cut the budget more. You can see some. Pre-cocaine days, you see some fat cigar-chomping guy go, and made in $300 million, cut the budget. <laughs> you know, just – just well, that's how America is nowadays. Right? The more true. money you make, well, less we're going to spend.
0: Yep. You know, um,
1: it always – but they did very good because they, they – I give – J. Lee Thompson and his whole crew credit for finding the cleanest, most newly built, and probably most modernistic for the time, office building areas in Los Angeles. True. And just doing a minimum amount of dressing, they they managed to make it quasi-futuristic. Don Murray, an uneven actor, a very intense guy when his game is on, played the governor in this picture. He was really, really good. And uh, Severin Darden, another character you probably we did a Mission Impossible TV series uh, show, guys. Mm-hmm. He, he appeared in about 30 of those. <laughs> <laughs> as different characters. And Harry Rhodes, uh, a good theatrical actor, uh, African-American actor, uh, he played a very important role in this film, called McDonald at the time. And it, there's a reason why. We, we won't get into too much of it. We want you to make your own decision. What's interesting about this is that Fox said no to J. Lee Thompson's final cut. And it wasn't until decades later when they finally put it back in, which is um, what actually happens post-siege when the apes take over the uh, city. And uh, mm-hmm. I could see why Fox made them cut that, because at the time, 1972, things were still kind of tense in America. And uh, this is right around the time of the Watts, uh, no, after the Watts riot, but. We don't need to say. Even though it happened in 1966, decades yeah. later it was felt. And civil rights movement was really a thing. Anyway, something happens to a major character, not a good one, not a good major character. That they said, no, no, no you gotta, you gotta come. So uh, that is actually the original version that we've known for years and years had an okay ending. We were fine with it. Actually, I, I, I was fine with it. That when I saw them put it back in, I'm like, I don't know about that. Yeah, because yeah. mm-hmm. it changes things. And, and, and I think this is one of those shows that we're probably not going to go away too much, at least for the earlier films. Next, we go to the sadly <laughs> Battle for the Planet of the East.
0: Sadly, that's right. Uh, the final film in the series really cements the cheapo television miniseries feel. Coming off more like an episode of the TV series than anything else, with all its bucolic Waltons, Gentle bend, Little House on the Prairie ethos. Starting off with flashback footage from the last two films only, here we get John Huston, sadly not as director, but in ape costume as the Lawgiver. A wholly extraneous narrator slash Greek chorus who's going to try to make sense of what amounts to several unrelated bits of footage. It really feels like they had if, even if it was just J. Lee Thompson himself he had three shoots and three scenes and they didn't know what the fuck to do with it so they put this guy in here and oh this guy going to patch it all together apparently the former Milo who had renamed himself Caesar in the last film has established a peaceable if not exactly equal society between apes and men there's a bit of a low grade hoo-ha when the human English teacher runs afoul of General Aldo when he tells him no after ripping up something Caesar's son did as the word was forbidden due to his associations with the slave conditioning scene in Conquest It's all just a MacGuffin, though, to get Caesar and Cologne slash younger relative to the black lieutenant governor from Conquest to head into the Forbidden Zone to find recordings of Caesar's parents. Of course, other members of Conquest are down there as well, turning slowly into the psychic mutants of Beneath. Sadly, any cool elements thereof have been stripped entirely, and it just turns into background noise and more pointless plot elements, hiding the fact that there was nothing to say here. Aldo tries to seize power and defies the Ape Shall Not Kill Ape edict by offering another Cornelius, not the one from the first two films, this is right there's been three different characters between those films and the TV series confused yet the mutants threaten nothing really happens Caesar sees the error of his ways and locks up the weapons to create a more equal society hoping that things will somehow improve a statue of him showing him crying oh what a fucking mess what a mess and here I was just thinking that the one before I'm like well Conquest really had some racially charged stuff it feels relevant it felt very courant for the time and then you get this I'm like the hell am I watching and it feels very disjointed. You know, you don't care about anything going on here. What's the whole point of the, the thing in the beginning, which takes about, I don't know, half an hour, 35 minutes, with the uh, the school teacher saying no and being brought before Caesar and whatever else? What's the whole point of uh, Ursus there going crazy and flipping out the whole time and playing antagonists when they really didn't need one? What was the whole point of them going down to the Forbidden Zone and seeing people that were not the original Forbidden Zone mutants, but more like the fat guy from Conquest? Uh, with the beard uh, sort of starting to rot and not really having psychic powers and just, I don't know what, menacing? I mean, there's basically a lot of people, there's a lot of talk. Lipsky flapping ain't saying nothing. It's that kind of a production, and it just feels cheap, and it feels, you'll see more of this in the TV series, but the series series was better. It feels very, like that kind of thing you got back then. People love that dirty Grapes of Wrath, Feel of things like the Waltons and Little House in the Prairie and whatever the hell else, or even the, the Pucolic thing of like, you know, Gentle Ben and, mm, um,
1: mm.
0: you know, that that kind of crap you'd see. Like, why why is anybody watching this? But somebody did, and some people love it. So if you love that, you're going to love this film. If you love the Apes films, eh, you're probably going to want you didn't have this one, but <laughs> maybe for completeness sake.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I just talk about how Fox, obviously, or they definitely are trimming the budgets on these things as they were going into production and this one uh, suffered so badly that a lot of it is shot i don't know in a spawn ranch (laughs) you know really really like not even not even like you know if you remember the first two pictures there's just a lot of like i don't know utah or someplace like that the grand canyon i mean just miles and miles and desolation and and rocks and some sand and here we get like i don't know forest after a hot summer you know, and yeah. it's 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 uh
0: it's like filming the b-52s back when we lived down in georgia in the beginning <laughs> who cares
1: yeah yeah it's just it's just like and, and when they're seldom on a set it looks like a tv set it looks like universal back lot you know it's just uh seen in trillions of uh, television shows not knocking the television shows themselves but I'm saying it's it's a recognizable almost a, an inanimate character so often it's like how many times the car is gonna go down the same street people turn the same corner yep so uh, that all being said they just they wanted to tie up the series for some reason and
0: I'll tell you why but you know.
1: yeah we'll get to that and, and but the, the cast is really just... Austin Stoker, everybody remembers from that great John uh, John Carpenter film, Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah, he, he he's in this. He's actually pretty terrific. But Claude Akins, you know, God bless Claude Akins. but he was good at what he did. But uh, once you put you know Claudie Akins in a pretty decent ape suit, yeah, you know, but you recognize the voice right away. It's kind of goofy. Yeah, you recognize the voice. He's, like he's <laughs> The same thing with John Houston. Yes. Paul Williams, we didn't recognize it with him until we saw the credits. <laughs> you know, but, um, I don't
0: know. What were you going to say, though? Uh, oh, well, I was going to explain why they dropped the uh, series after it's like a hot potato. And it's going into the TV series. So in 1974, mm-hmm. here's what I think the crux of the problem is. The reason that this extremely popular series, which more or less defined popular sci-fi in the early to mid-'70s, complete with long-running comic magazine series from Marvel, a Power Records run of Book and Records, if you remember those, action figures, Migos, if you remember those things, models, Halloween masks and costumes, that went on for years, five films, a TV series, suddenly died off. Is that their producer, Arthur C. Jacobs, who essentially owned and ran the franchise, died in 1973. I know that's the reason. Because after Mm. that, things change. 'Cause what little survived it from seventy four to seventy six. Okay, it was still, you know, popular enough, people cared about the apes, but it was generally looked down upon as inferior. I mean the only one I'll stand up for that whole batch is the T V series, which carries over Roddy McDonald's, a different, if similarly minded, character named Gallon, who's a research assistant once again of Professor Zayas, And two odd looking clone types as are surviving astronauts of Ron Harper and James Norton. Neither of whom seems to have much of a career, unless you count playing ex-husbands on Who's the Boss and Cagney and Lacey as a Thing, which I believe was Naughton's uh, career. Star Trek's Spock daddy Mark Leonard is the baddie who schemes against the sympathetic Roddy and the humans. Zaius is easily swayed by whoever makes the best argument on a given day. It's all familiar scaled down for a TV budget. Unlike the often racially charged metaphors of the film series, though, the TV series seems to focus more on progressive change through equality of the races and working together to learn from one another. It's less pointed, and not so much about slavery and role reversal, but more of a hippie positivity and one-world take. Naive, maybe, but an easier pill to swallow, if you don't mind the super low-budgets in bucolic midwestern western feel, endemic to all those films, uh, the shows I mentioned, Little House, Filmation Saturday Morning Live Action series like Arc 2, Shazam, or Secrets of Isis, or even Land at a Lost, which lead Ron Harper joined the cast of immediately after this. He was like an uncle-something or other. Uh, there was a few interesting episodes here. More avocative than you expect. I mean, the opener in particular works as a small-scale TV version of the first film, or Planet Goes Star Trek, if you will. The Legacy works fairly well. It's another Star Trek sort of thing about a bombed-out city block that happens to store the archives of lost humankind before the apocalypse. It's hilarious how easy it is to access this stuff, though. So it's like, oh, yeah, let me open this gate. Oh, there's a projector there. Oh, it says go downstairs. I mean, it's, wow. They didn't put no thought <laughs> into that. Of course, being the zero-budget-driven uh, character-driven seventy show that this is most of the running times taken up of Ron Harper finding himself with a new de facto family the youngest of which betrays him several times over there's even the obligatory mortal enemies forced to cooperate for survival episode the trap where Norton and Urko get trapped in the old subway in a cave-in it's a slow series and way too laid back but it's not without merit and I will say I have more fond memories of this especially having revisited it recently than of the Logan's Run TV series. So I love Logan's Run, the movie, but the TV series just, I don't know, missed the mark really badly. Oh, here we go. The problem is possibly due to Jacob's absence, something's missing here. While the pilot episode is actually quite good on the whole, the sets and costumes don't change, and it all feels very samey over its 14-episode run. And it's still better than the more fascinating post-apocalypse of the Logan's Run TV series, but it's not quite up to snuff, and that's pretty much all she wrote. I believe the magazine sputtered along until around 1978, and it's very possible you can still find action figures or Mego and some, in second-hand or comic shop at the time, or the Halloween mask and the costumes even into the early 80s, though they were likely rebranded in some generic fashion as Humanoid Gorilla or some such. But, like all pre-Star Wars sci-fi, it was kind of swept under the table and forgotten in the face of what was, at the time, seemed like a more exciting and populous form of sci-fi, a less heady and philosophical or science-based one, and one that was more based on comical fantasy and pulp or serial aesthetic. There was a short-lived cartoon of which I have zero memories, about nineteen seventy-four, I believe, and apparently these are Tim Burton reboot two thousand one. I don't even remember that. Okay.
1: Before you go much further. Yeah. So the TV series. Uh, well, one of the problems with it is, yeah, you're you pretty much outlining those things very well, the like repetitive storylines, the um, <laughs> cheap. It's like why do something when you are not invested? Right. I mean, I'm not talking about the actors. They, you know. They're giving lines, and everybody worked really hard. I'm sure Roddy hated every day getting into the makeup. <laughs> uh, all the, uh, the major characters appear quite often on screen that played apes. Uh, must have been a bitch. But this got canceled after only 14 episodes. And, you know, first of all, it's airing on Friday night. Every no, Everyone knows Friday Night's a Kiss of Death for a show. Yep. And uh, especially a show as odd as this that, doesn't hold up to, pardon me, the the films that led up to it. Um, yes, there was an animated series. I remember seeing portions of it. I have not revisited it. Yes. You said apparently there was a 2001 Planet Apes by Tim Burton. You haven't seen it,
0: right? No, yeah, I don't remember this at all.
1: It wasn't too bad. I'm I surprised that he wanted to do it because he likes doing things he's spirit, you know, like he has an idea, a project, and if it's a reimagining of something. Okay. And yeah, he's done a couple of reimagined films from before. But there was something wrong with this one. Um, Mark Barbark Marky Mark. Marky Mark. <laughs> he played astronaut Leo Davidson, travels to the Warhammer the whole thing like the first picture. Yeah. Tim Roth, uh, but he changed things though. So, he changed things up, but making the character of Elena Bonham Carter's character, Ari, who was like the um, stand-in for the uh, Kim Hunter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she likes she likes Mark Wahlberg a little bit too much, and that 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 <laughs> just really like hmm no. There's no the film is also missing the film is also missing. Um, That Roddy McDowell character, Caesar, Mm -hmm. or Cornelius, it's really big time missing that. What the film did have going for it, what it did have going for it, was a bizarre supporting cast. We had Tim Roth as the uh, Thade, which is like a a nurse's stand-in, and then Michael Clark Duncan from
0: the... Daredevil, yeah.
1: Daredevil, The Fifth Planet, uh, The Fourth, that really good look based on film with Bruce... Um, Good film it. yes, yes, and um, Kari Hiroki Tagawa, former bit player, and then big baddie with the first Mortal Kombat film, you know, using this, and uh, David Warner used primarily first voice, you know, it's just it's just the weirdest fucking cast, and you know, although I thought I thought Mark Wahlberg acquitted himself well, you know, it wasn't the best thing he ever did in his life, but. It wasn't such a terrible movie, but it also tried to jackhammer. Yeah, I, th- I, I was thinking, I probably thought, how are we going to end this film? With the kind of uh, gut punch that the first plan, the original Planet of the Apes 1968 had. And it was just too weak of a, that kind of thing. You saw it coming. And then they kind of did a little twist on that. And I said, like, Neh. So people were walked out like, camera audiences in 2001. Pretty different much different from audiences in 1960. People didn't go for this kind of ending. Mm -hmm. And they really should have rethought it. And it could have led to another picture or not. I don't know. But it wasn't well received until the 2011 reboot.
0: Yeah, because I had said about those in the cartoon. I was like, it must have been quite forgettable, particularly the latter being the Burton film, because I had no idea. And so far as I'm concerned, it didn't even happen. (laughs) But until 2011, 20th Century Fox decides to reboot the whole thing. So anyway... Rise of the Planet of the Apes. This one, as sorry as I am to report it, is by far the best of the reboot series. Should you ever find yourself suffering from the mad masochistic courage to so subject yourself to such. I do not by any means recommend this course of action and in fact offer severe warnings inclusive of seeking out hazard pay from whoever suggested such a viewing. <laughs> but there you go. Be warned, it builds as we move on through the series. Directed by a Rupert Wyatt of No Apparent Filmography of Note, and written by the team of Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver. I mention these just because their increasing insignificance and absence in the sequels explains a lot. Crafted a poorly characterized little drama that attempts to swipe elements of the first Resident Evil movie, 28 Days Later, and whatever other echo friendly gone horror picture you can think of, maybe not Shockma, but you get the idea, and softened into some humanist fable about, who the hell knows, they failed miserably. Uh, there's a whole thing about a chimp being mentally augmented, A big side plot that doesn't really play into anything about James Franco's father, that clown John Lithgow, whose sole credit of interest appears to be the pommel's blowout and how he's got Alzheimer's. When the chimp flips out for no apparent reason, they abort the project and euthanize all the animals in the lab who they've been sharing the smart one's blood with and trying to standardize intelligence. Yeah, that always goes well. One last one, turning out to be the smart chimp's baby, gets spared because the hipster in charge doesn't have the stomach to finish the murder spree he started. A little too great to grow a conscience there, buddy. Shoves it off on Franco. Hide him or euthanize him yourself. I'm out of here. So he does, and despite being some government project, no one seems to notice that this guy's walking a chimp around the suburbs. Yeah, that went well for that lady who got her face ripped off a year or two back. So yeah. the chimp gets attached to old man Lithgow, who's apparently getting dosed with the chimp's blood as well. As a side thing about beating Alzheimer's, don't ask me, this is all really stupid and convoluted for no reason. And they've got a male Karen of a neighbor who likes to scream and threaten a lot. So Donnie old Lithgow somehow sees the guy's Mustang, parked with windows open and keys in the ignition, and starts smashing it back and forth into other cars. So when our MAGA pal flips out on him, out comes the chimp, oh no, now the whole deal is exposed to the public. So now the chimp gets taken to a shelter where he's bullied until he teaches the other sign language and becomes de facto leader, eventually leading him all to break out and escape to the woods. Oh, and now someone, there's a COVID... AIDS-style monkey virus infecting humans, too. The film suddenly closes out, and the apes in the woods as a military asshole traveling around the world spreading that disease, gearing us up for the next lovely episode. What the fuck was all this? Where were the heavy overtones of racial inequality, failure to communicate across the lines of divide, and the importance of treating everyone with the same base measure of equanimity and due respect that the original series seemed to be all about? Nope, instead we've got some AIDS, SARS, anthrax, Ebola pressing to the onset of COVID nonsense, some non-existent focus on character that barely hits the cipher level, an Indian rented girlfriend who just falls into this whole thing out of nowhere and is about emotionally and sexually involved with Franco or anyone else here as a supporting character in a Disney movie, and barely enough of a tearful relationship between Franco and Lithgow to fill a Hallmark card ad. It's like broad sketch a story that never get developed to any degree whatsoever, without a drama character, build science fiction or anything else, and it only goes downhill from here.
1: Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I enjoyed the first one. Um I gotta make me take my notes, you bastard.
0: It's the best of the three. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> For what that's worth.
1: I I I, I actually I enjoyed Rise of the Planet of the Apes, 2011. Um, not, Well, first, I'm going to say I'm not a, Jim, James, Frank, I'm not a James Franco. I said yes, <laughs> and that James Franco heater. I know there's some things going on out there. I thought the 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 effects, uh, the CG. Well, what they did was taking uh, taking the rotoscoping techniques used that Ralph Bash worked on years and years ago for his Lord of the Rings and Fire and Ice and stuff like that. They kind of advanced that to doing this computer generated thing, but doing capture performance acting. So I thought, and it does get better, but I thought the film was fine. And um, yes, I understand what you just said about where's the racial equality, where's the social injustice, but 2011. So the main thing is on abusive animals and experimentation, which was a big thing. Mm-hmm. And which seems to have gotten quiet, I'm sure. Now I'm gonna put this out there, folks. We all took, on, we've all taken our um, anti cover medications, haven't most of us, right? Mm-hmm. How do you think they test these things? Of course. And, and I'm sad to even think about it. Um, so this was a backlash against the animal testing that was run rampant, the animal abuse in these in these in these uh, labs. And I'm sure. Hopefully, if this, uh, there's a new COVID thing out there
0: now. Today, did you see that? Oh, the new one from Africa. Yes. What the fuck? And it's a significant increase in evolution. It's got like, I think they said the old one had four uh, mutations yeah. or fakes that it, you know variants that could go through and fight the vaccines with. This one has thirty, and they <laughs> don't think the vaccines are going to be successful against it. Like a... <laughs> uh,
1: I know, this, they're, they're going to have to make another vaccine, I, I am, I'm getting kind of scared about putting this shit in my body exactly anyway, so that's what I think this had to do now, Dawn of the Planet of Apes
0: yeah, so Dawn of the I... Planet Apes 2014 unbelievably the CG gets much worse for the sequel now directed by Matt Reeves and written by Mark Bomback, reworking whatever remained in the original draft by Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver who exit the series here Perhaps this is why even the low-bar environmental standards of screenwriting and the awkward dramatic bits that went nowhere, like Franco's father struggling with Alzheimer's or cardboard cut characterization of ostensibly major characters like Franco and his Indian rented girlfriend are entirely missing. In this place, all the untranslated sign language is prominently subtitled for what little that's worth. There's more of a plot, but less of a story. The whole thing is like a few chapters in the middle of a book, rather than a film in toto. The apes are still living in the park or forest they went to at the end of the first film. Unfortunately, the humans got really fucked by that military dick who caught the equivalent of COVID and spread it globally in the closing credits last time. Now everyone's living in Resident Evil 2-style cities behind rusty graffiti-covered gates without power. They make an incursion into the forest to try to reboot the local hydroelectric dam, but are tossed up by the apes. A second, smaller attempt works, but is sabotaged several times along the way by human distrust, packing heat against the apes despite a clear demand to surrender any such. Some drunken perimeter guard's would-be new leader, Koba, finds behind the human walls and finally, Koba himself, plowing his way (laughs) to power under a false flag operation. This turns into an all-out raid in the human city that kills most of the overlong film. Ugh! Meantime, Caesar and his family learn to trust. With the wife healing his, and the weird sort of Rick on the young one's uh, kid, you're getting Jesus Raymond Pettybird, Black Flag album, man, book to an ape who helps him. What the fuck? <laughs> I don't
1: know. <laughs> uh, you're getting
0: tougher and tougher at this, old man. Uh, well, whenever
1: whenever <laughs> you have Gary Oldman cast as an ex-military officer, you know he's gonna be. His script read, Gary, go nuts. <laughs> Although he reins himself in a little bit, Oldman also just went completely. Goes completely gonzo, not classic gonzo, like in um, another great Luke Besson film, uh, the one with um, John Reno. Oh, yeah. yeah sure. Olden the
0: Professional, f- whatever. The
1: professional, yeah. Olden's completely fucking off the charts in there. So it's, it's not completely gonzo, but it's close. And so uh, I, I enjoyed this film. I, I don't know. Everything you said about it would make me want to see it. <laughs> Except the part that you can't fucking stand it. So I actually enjoyed it It's, it's a good middle film And I, it leads to what I thought was a really, really Last film, which I think you probably
0: hated So War for the Planet of the Apes 2017 <laughs> Now the guy who directed the wrong turn that was Dawn Matt Reeves And the guy who took over headwriting on that one, Mark Bomback, Become full co-conspirators Reeves both directing and writing alongside Bomback, And boy does it show <laughs> What few tidbits of characterization humanity stuck around for the second film, they're completely gone here. It's all war all the time, with long-term COVID having mutated into a human devolution cipher. So people turn mutant stupid, the Republican dream. This time, the big Nazi military asshole is Woody Harrelson. Yay. I'd rather see his stoner brother Brett crawling up from behind the couch to sell you CBD, you know, stupid as it is. That would explain it. I can't imagine getting through these Ruby films sober. Oh wait, I tried that already. Big mistake. Jeez, man, what did you see in these awful pieces of shit that possessed you to have you watch them? I mean, every one is like three hours. The first one sucks. (laughs) The other two were 20 times worse. I mean, I think I've seen better TV productions on the CW. Pure shit. And it's a good thing I ran them on 1.5 speed. I feel like I wasted too many hours of my life on these already. And I hear they're going to make another one.
1: I, well, there's there's rumors of another one. I, I really don't know. I also heard rumors of a reboot, which is like no. If you're gonna do another one, make a sequel to this one. Don't don't reboot it again because you'll lose what, what any audience you've had. But yeah, very very. If they do make a sequel to this, also it would be like uh, No Time to Die with everybody going. I don't like this movie. I hate it because I don't understand. It's like you know what's the sequel. Spectre, and though Spectre was made in 2016, you have to see Spectre to understand any fucking thing in this movie. It was supposed to come out three years ago. I remember. So if they have a sequel to this, if they don't do it soon, another another reboot makes no sense. I enjoyed this film I I really was invested with it. Yeah. Fuck you. And, <laughs> and, and no, I was totally invested with it. I I I got a little emotional sometimes. Really. So, and I I I thought. Andy Circus did such great work. Yeah, you know, his voice, his movements, all that's digitized, but just a tremendous job. Woody Harrelson definitely is doing the Commander Kurtz thing, a Colonel Kurtz thing in this. You know that. <laughs> and, and you know, complete with the bald head and like you know, getting his voice patterns down. You know, with that little little Southern accent. You know, uh, <laughs> I I I thought this was a tremendous film. It's a bit longish, at um, over two and a half hours long. But um, I enjoyed it. I I, I thought it, I thought it was a fine fine way to end this. Uh, I, I, what I thought then was a trilogy. And I want to add, you might be unaware, because you hate Matt Reeves so much, <laughs> this poor guy from Rockville Center, in New York. You know, he's he's the guy who directed the Batman,
0: the new one. Oh, great! More credits to <laughs>
1: <laughs> the one, the you know the one with Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz. <laughs> Robert Pattinson. Yeah, your hero. That was a and sparkle. Andy Serkis plays Alfred. Team Jacob. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and Andy is obviously not in pink makeup if he's playing Alfred. I hope. Mm. Uh, anyway, so um, I loved this film, and I and and, and I, I I really enjoyed this trilogy, the second and third films. So, so much more and uh, I, I I, pushed my co-host Doc Savage almost forgot your name <laughs> uh, it's been a while uh, we're going to out you one of these days so I, I I convinced my co-host to watch these because I thought it would grab him because I really would say you got to watch these and he fucking hated them but it's okay <laughs>
0: Well, all comedy aside, comedy (laughs) and blunt honesty aside, (laughs) I can see why he's like, you know what, you might as well see these remakes because at least they claim they're drawing bits from this one, drawing bits from that one. And I've seen that mentioned a couple times. Oh, yeah, they were trying to go after the vibe of the first one. This one was trying to go after the vibe of the fourth one. All right, maybe, but they failed. (laughs) It was like, wow. There's, There's such a difference. This is exactly what I was talking about in the beginning about. The difference between classic cinema and modern cinema is like, all right, yeah, you may want to go on a, a roller coaster throw ride. You know, drop that elevator drop where your stomach winds up in your eyeballs and you get off the thing and you vomit all over the place. Woo, wasn't that fun? But it's not the same thing. It's not going for the same thing. There's nothing cerebral about it, there's nothing emotional about it. It's just pure junk food it's like douse yourself with sugar and you know then doing some blow and see what happens you know uh i don't care for it as a rule sometimes it can be fun you know i definitely enjoy a lot of junk and i certainly enjoy things that were considered junk by the mainstream that where it's like some schmuck and a couple teenagers decide to do something and don't have the money or the vision or the equipment to pull off what they want to do and it becomes this quirky artifact like you know like a Mono's Hands of Fate sort of a thing or a Mark Polonia film or something. Love that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the big budget of Hollywood stuff, it's like, I don't know what you guys are shooting for, but it certainly didn't hit any marks for me. And that's what these are, like the quintessential version of. Like, nah. Well, you, you
1: couldn't have made these for less than the money they spent. I mean, oh, you yeah. just couldn't. You couldn't have. They, they wanted, well, in regarding performance capture... They wanted to do where I don't know if you saw. There's a because I have the multi-disc extra, extra, extra version of these films. Um, they showed you how they did this, and you know, I, I, it's like the Avengers too. These guys wear like tapings, like uh, adhesive, yes, with these dots on them and lights. On. I don't know how they can be relaxed enough to, to do any kind of performance, and. So I, I just, it's just it's amazing knowing how they did it and then watching it and then it's like, wow, that's a pretty good performance. I mean, really, it, I I got nothing against the guy, but Andy Circus is a pretty ugly motherfucker. And he's very handsome as as he ate. You know, he's like a king guy, <laughs> and he is. He's supposed to be Caesar, and he's the king of the fucking apes, and he's regal and majestic, and he's just like a weird looking guy you would find in an Irish pub. And on the floor. I believe he'll hide two drink, and uh, most of his performances is like that. It's weird. Um, anyway, uh, no, no, I, I, I like these films. I, I, I guess it didn't work this time. A couple of times you watch something like, oh my god, you were right. But oh
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> but I can't say anything else about this because you just. You nailed my
0: fucking hands to the cross, (laughs) man. You're so evil. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) That's basically it on this wonderful series. Um, Like I said, the the big secret for those of you who may have uh, taken a quick bathroom break or something was that the producer had passed on right around the time of the last film in the original series and right before other things that were probably already in the pipeline, like the TV series, maybe the animated series, and of course, things like the comic series and everything else were already set up and in line, so I would imagine they just kept them going, did the best they could, but... That's why you notice this precipitous drop in quality, not to mention the lack of money that was invested in these mm-hmm. things as you got towards the end. So that's basically it. It shows you how one man can really kind of make a difference in good or bad ways. I understand the same thing happened with that guy that used to import the Turkish films. One of those uh, Turkish films, where they have the guys dressed up like superheroes. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they'd never bring them over here because the companies would ban them. And that one fellow was selling them by himself. I got one or two over the years. And oh, wish Onar, I, right? Odar films, right. yeah, yeah. And I yeah. wish I had more because that's it. You're never gonna get them again unless somebody else picks up his stuff. but well, uh, he died. And, yeah, he died. That's exactly it. Yeah,
1: he so, died. And um, it's funny. I mean, it's it's. I still see. I kept on to a few of them. I have to check. You still see people mentioning those. And so, who's got them? Well, I don't know. He's he he's been passed on. A couple of years now. A couple of years now, so I, I think I mean, you know, you know your death Lost
0: the they time turn, or something?
1: <laughs> they throw shit out, you know. It's like uh, things that happen, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame because uh, historically, also there seems to be no interest in those things anymore, but only because we need to start it up again. That's how it happened. Yes, People we're talking about them. Like, what are, you,
0: what are they talking about? Oh, yeah, all through the 90s was just people talking about all these rare horror films, and maybe you get them through the gray market or whatever. And uh, all of a sudden, we got into the days of DVD and then Blu-ray, and now it's like stuff that we heard about, nobody had even back then, and nobody could locate, this doesn't exist or whatever. Now they're out there. So it's like, wow, that felt stupid. Why we waste our time and money back then? But you're talking about over a 30-year span. What are you going to do?
1: Well, I don't want to talk about something else. That'll put us off on a not-nice note. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, we
0: hope you enjoyed listening to the show. Yes. Well, I was going to say thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed a little drawing room chat on Go Ape! The Planet of the Apes series. and oh, Two series, actually. Yes, yes.
1: And, and one thing uh, I think neither of us mentioned, and I wanted to, and I slipped my mind, is that maybe Fox knew that the Battle for the Planet of the Apes, 1973, uh, was such a tanker that when they released it, they released it on the same day. They said, Go wait for a day. This is where this came from, remember? Yes. And on opening day, it's Battle for the Planet of the Apes, and for like three days to a week, it was like you could see all these pictures in one day, going every yeah. day, because they realized they had a huge turkey in their hands,
0: I believe. Honestly, the same thing happened when I saw Future World as a kid. Even though I like that, when we talk about that in our um, Peter Fonda show, Peter Fonda, but they actually showed it with Westworld almost immediately after it came out because you know it was tanking, so yeah. here yeah. put it with a hit. <laughs> That was, that was how I saw it. Just like uh, Saturday Night Fever with Grease.
1: <laughs> or, but, or, or
0: uh, what was this? Oh,
1: uh, or, or Saturday Night, F- Staying Alive, playing with Saturday Night Fever is the co-feature. Everybody went to see Stay, uh, Saturday, Stay, Saturday Night Fever again, you know? Yep,
0: I saw it with Grease, though. And then, uh, what's the other double feature I ever Oh, He went from the Deep with Spawn of the Slithers. <laughs> that sounds like fun. It was. It was great. <laughs> uh,
1: anyway, so this is where Go Ape for a Day came from. And you could probably find some uh, images on the web of the uh, copies of the original uh, advertisements. Yes. When it played movie theaters, right? right.
0: So uh, anything else you want to close out on?
1: No, no. Thanks for listening. As always, uh, we, we, we thank you for listening, and we hope you stay well and safe out there. We'll be back.
0: Yes, we'll be back with Season 11 in the new year. And if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, you'd like to join us on air. Drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weird scenes one or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weird scenes one Of course, we're on Podbean, uh, com. We're on iTunes. If you're in particular, you can look at us under ID 553402044. Otherwise, just look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast same with Spotify, and same with Amazon Podcasts. The reach keeps growing. So, the Weird Scenes of the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Center Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, uh, any last comments? or? Oh, happy holidays, everyone who we'll celebrates them. Yes, all the many holidays of Yule, and Christmas, and Kwanzaa, and Hanukkah, and Jeez what? Else? I didn't already pass The Hanukkah's the
1: one that sucks
0: though. You got untasty food and no presents really.
1: But <laughs> I, I, I I got I got it from Jewish friends, you know. I have a lot of Jewish friends, you know, growing up. You know, like, man, you got Christmas, what'd you get? What would you do that? I, mean, yeah, I got this little piece of plastic thing I turned and twizzle on it What's that thing that the It's a top.
0: Junior Dreadle? Yeah. I get the chocolate gold coins. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, all right. Happy holidays, everybody. Mm-hmm. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardman committee. These are the province of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? I reductio ad you out absurd and look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about what. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level. Bringing more to you. Only on the Big Poppa Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life.
1: I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his Scarlet Women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover?
0: Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the Yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality the dark side and the light from the organized to the out of the way
1: this show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling
0: join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value and in what inevitably fails in organized practice but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life
1: moving towards life Lessons in life and spirituality from an Unconventional Seeker.
0: Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network
1: on Blog Talk Radio.
0: Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage,
1: Lois Hall, and myself, discuss with beloved, the king, the weird,
0: and the wonderful world of cult films, music, and television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age.
1: Tune in turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream, as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Rear Seats Inside the gold mine.
0: only here on the Big Papa Online Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Hey. Hey. I answered the phone, and yet I didn't pick up the phone, so, <laughs> so I'm like, hey, to the air. <laughs> How you doing? Okay. okay, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Oh, okay, okay. How so are you holding up otherwise.
1: Well, I'm having more good days and bad days, lately, but uh, so I was able to do my trip into New York. Yeah, what uh, did you hit in anyway? You just a hell of it? I figured I had a couple of days off. It's uh, I'm tired of taking time off from work to uh, do all these doctor visits and physical therapy visits, and I feel like I, I'm i exhausted because yeah. I have no time. Yeah, and, sure. you know, the weekend comes, like, oh, thank God, you know, <laughs> So I had about an extra two days off. I didn't really do much on Thursday, so I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. It's been a fucking cold out, though. Wow. And, I, yeah, well, sometimes a whim. I, I'm i still supposed to see our Genesis concert next Monday. Okay. So I said, I haven't been to New York in a while.
0: So how and are they I- going to do this? I mean, I, I see there's, like, Peter Gabriel stuff on there. Are they bringing him back? Is, who's going no, no, the drums, you no.
1: It's Phil's other son,
0: Nicholas.
1: Okay. And, uh, I mean, if you see the stuff, the YouTube stuff, it's, it's, it's split 50 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, reactions, you know, hardcore people are like, I don't care, you know, it's like the Stones. Yeah. But I think the Stones have been putting on some good shows. Hey, you know, when you don't tour for a while and, and, and you know, and enforced by COVID that they, they couldn't. And, um, the first couple of shows, with Steve Jordan, who Keith always plays with, were kind of eh. yeah. But they they got better. They have a different sound though. That's all it is. Some friends might have been unkind, so, whatever. But I I like to think I'm more even-handed on some stuff. I if you play a certain kind of music, but then you play multiple kinds of music, and you but you're saying you're one kind of sound. You know, like you know, we discussed this before because I've been listening to a lot of international prog stuff, and you know, and some of it's just nice and symphonic. And on the same record, you can get some thrash core.
0: Yes, well, <laughs> true. Some of the yeah, stuff they I, call prog is crazy. You don't, uh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I, 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 and but I, I have a lot of friends. Oh, I like them. I got, a lot, I got all their stuff. And I said, well, it's good for you because. I I don't know because you're you're trying to embrace an overall audience, but you're alienating some of them. Mm-hmm. And there's a particular particular audience for this harder stuff. Yeah. And and, and trust me, I'm not exaggerating. So anyway, back to Genesis. Yeah, I have seen some stuff. So Phil has more bad days than good apparently, and he's sitting in a chair and he uses a a trifold foot cane. get to his chair and you know eh, you know when I bought the ticket this is before they announced he can't play and I'm like oh damn I didn't know and then they said he's sitting in a chair I'm like what (laughs) and then I saw the videos and it's just like oh man it's like going to your great grandfather's and he's only 70-ish, 70, seventy-one. Yeah. And he looks 94. I mean, he just looks in terrible, terrible health.
0: And that's the problem. You go to so many shows, like, I didn't realize that this stick show we went to, we were pretty damn lucky, because other than not having Dennis the Young there, you know, all right, they're getting on, but they put on a good show. Tommy Shaw definitely did some solid shit. And uh, they didn't seem like they were dotted Why did you? <laughs> <laughs> so many of these old bands... Oh, okay.
1: Oh, yeah, so they, they, they just released ago? something. Yeah. I picked it up. Uh, Crash of the Crown, I think. Uh, a friend of mine from England. Okay. Uh, he follows a uh, folk, like a Celtic folk, rockish kind Nice man. He sent me some stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's big into Italian folk Go figure. And so we <laughs> he, we message each other. <laughs> so it's late there and whatever. And he says, you know, what do you think of Sticks? And I said, no. I'm not gonna knock them. They, they were, for their time, you know. But I really haven't listened to them in a long time. And I know Dennis DeYoung left the band to go to Broadway, and I did, he did do that strip for a while. <laughs> and now he tours like Dennis doing the songs of sticks, which is, just get back with the band, you know. And you guys can sheer leave all this whatever.
0: Well, they were good without him. If you if you've heard the early stuff with, uh, yeah. with Nickel, the record company, yeah i got that so anyway he told me about treatment.
1: this new sticks and i'm like oh i i didn't know so i did some research and I'm like wow these reviews are tremendous and then i looked on the prog boards and they're like no this is pretty good so it was like only 11 dollars for the cd on amazon i'm like fuck i'll get it you know it's cheap oh <laughs> uh, yeah it's pretty decent <laughs> pretty decent other than that yeah like i said my back's holding out and uh so yeah i wanted to See if like, I can handle going to the garden. I don't know. I, even the cheap seat was expensive. It's like one of those upper things where the handlebar that divides the aisle stops. And then you got like another 10 more rows of seats before you get to the seat. And wow. I did buy. I always try to buy uh, an aisle seat. So, yeah. I mean, the plan is I'd like to do it without the cane because I'd be like a pain in the ass, you know. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see you know if I'm holding up well I'll do it without and if it's a good show I'll enjoy myself if it's a so-so show I'll leave really between you and me because no <laughs> I don't do that you know I'm sure the band is good but
0: if it's just oh this is sad you know well they get a lot of, I don't know if they're doing it but a lot of times I see things where there's like one or two of the old members there and they got a lot of young guns there, and obviously they know the material. They have to to be doing this band like a tribute thing, but it's it's to be going through the motions. I'm like, yeah, this doesn't really feel right well, at no. all. Well,
1: no, I mean you got uh, you got Mike Rutherford, Tony Banks, they're still there, and David right. Drummer. It was sort of like what boxy Music did for a while. Uh, after Eno left, all those guys who were in all the Roxy music albums are like not really Roxy music. You know, so, <laughs> you know Daryl's been playing bass and guitars for years.
0: Right. You know,
1: sort of like what they did to Daryl Jones and the Stones. He, right. Every, when Bill Wyman left in '94, he's still not a Stone. He's like a hired hand. You know.
0: Yeah, re-impressed and, You know.
1: Yeah. So anyway, uh, when I mean if it's so-so or worse it's it's all on Phil you know? right. if, he, if he looks bad if he sounds terrible and I'll just say well, I submit myself to this you know
0: exactly yeah. it seemed like a good set list though. I mean I, I missed a few things like Abacab there but you know and I don't think they had a legal alien if I remember
1: no my friend uh, my friend said to me uh, if you don't want to go I'll, I'll buy the tickets no I, you know because I only bought one Yeah, you know, so mm-hmm. I figured you know we'll see so, we'll see. So, yeah, today's an okay day. Last night, I had the the blue. My back was like, oh, and I'm thinking, what the hell did I do? Which is nothing. It just <laughs> suddenly, You know, it happened. Yeah. yeah. It'll happen, you know. All right. Do you want to test this and we'll get going on planning? It's because you want to go Christmas
0: tree shopping, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we were uh, lazy these last couple of years. We used to always get the fresh ones. Mm. And, you know, she loved that. It was a big thing for her. Because I didn't even celebrate any holidays for several years back when,
1: mm. before
0: she met me. But she really wanted to do this. Actually, the first couple of years we didn't. It's like, oh no, you know, I, I never really got to celebrate Christmas because you know she grew up with, I don't know, Buddhist or whatever, no religion, and she just loved all this Christmas crap. So, we started uh, doing that for years and years, and still to this day, she's kind of big on it. So, what we did along the way was we got a one of those artificial ones. Mm-hmm. It's not the greatest, but it's not terrible. You can get away with it. And over the last, like, I don't say three years, we've both gotten so lazy because it used to be me, like, ah, geez, I don't mind taking this thing out and, you know, finding all the broken lights and putting the damn new string on, whatever, but I'm so sick of putting all the ornaments on, and it just takes forever. But she's uh, come around to the same thing, like, eh, it's not worth all the stress. Let's just pull this thing out of the box, hope it works, and then (laughs) there you go.
1: (laughs) Well, I did that last year. Uh, The first year, the kitten was still a kitten, so I couldn't do it. I I don't need to tell you why. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, last year, I bought a fake one, which was pretty decent, and she didn't bother at all. So I said, All right, the problem was, you know, it comes out of the box, you can't get it back in the box. Uh At least the one I got. So I'm like, I'm stowed away. Like like an idiot. I'm looking around today, I'm like, I didn't keep the balls? What a fucking idiot. No,
0: I'll buy them again. It is a bitch to get back in those boxes because they put the little skinny things there. Like, ah, oh, jeez.
1: Yeah, no, no way. Um, so I I was going to go out today. It depends on when we finish. Otherwise, I'll do it during my lunch hour tomorrow.
0: All right. So let's check this out and be right back.